everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show's expert series, where we focus on go-to-market topics of interest to entrepreneurs. My guest today is Joyce McKenzie Liu, founder and CEO of Pegafund, which provides early-stage companies with strategic and operational CFO services to prepare the companies for predictable growth, fundraising, and global go-to-market success. Prior to Pegafund, Joyce was an advisor, investor, and board member of European and U.S. B2B software companies, including being an early growth investor at Columbia Lake Partners, a Bessemer-backed European debt fund. So I'm really excited to have this conversation because metrics are so important in the early stages as well as in the later stages of a startup. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much, Anita. Thanks for having me on your show. So Joyce, to start off, I wanted to get some more background on your experience and why you decided to start Pegafund and helping early stage companies with fundraising and strategic and operational CFO services. Can you talk me through how you got here? Yeah, sure. I started working in financial services in 2007. I started back in the day at a business called GE Capital, which doesn't exist today anymore. It's been broken off and sold to many different lines of business. But that was really interesting because it meant that I joined the industry at a time when the market started freezing. And then we went through quite a big global recession during the 2008, 2009, and 2010 period. At that time, I was working at JP Morgan. I worked in different business lines first working actually within a startup within JP Morgan that helped advise US pension plans on their asset allocation strategy, which included doing due diligence on VC funds, growth equity funds, private equity funds, hedge funds, and other alternative asset classes. And then that division, after it got sold uh, to an insurance company, I decided to stay with a bank and joined the syndicated leverage finance team which basically provides uh, debt financing to private and uh, public companies across different industry sectors. I started focusing on software in 2012 when I moved over to Aries Capital. Aries Capital is a large diversified asset manager. I think they're close to $160 billion uh, assets under management today. I started focusing on software investments, mostly mid-market and late stage private equity buyout transactions. So in essence, taking some of the dot-com tech companies that had gone public, private, in order to streamline operations, oftentimes change leadership and divest non-core assets. I became interested first in the European tech ecosystem back in 2013, because at the time, a lot of my peers were joining Rocket Internet-backed portfolio companies. And there was you know, a lot of rumor about Rocket Internet and Zalando going public, which happened in fall of 2014. And um, it was also at that time that I started doing early stage investments at Aries because we had a very small side fund that took opportunistic bets on early stage businesses, mostly B2C and marketplaces at the time. And so through those two experiences, I got curious about what was happening in Europe. Also, because people were starting to talk about Zendesk, which is actually a Danish company that then filed their S1 in early 2014. And so through the back of that, I kind of fell down a rabbit hole, if you will, and spoke to founders and investors across the London and Berlin tech ecosystems at the time. 
And through those conversations came to the realization that the European tech uh, ecosystem was going to grow in a really big way. There was a lot of entrepreneurs that had been successful abroad coming back home uh, to Europe. Uh, You were seeing a lot more operator-led funds being formed. Mm. They're not just bankers and consultants and private equity folks starting VC funds, but actual real operators and scalers. So all of that, and and also the whole ecosystem around that meant specialist lawyers, accountants who understand high-growth companies. Mm -hmm. The whole ecosystem was was growing. So I took a leap of faith and moved from um, LA to London in 2014 to see where this European adventure would take me. And here we are seven years later. During that seven-year period, I had the privilege of working at Columbia Lake Partners, which was, as you mentioned earlier, a Bessemer-backed European debt fund, and also at Dong Capital, which is a London-based software-focused B2B fund. And through those experiences came to the realization that there was a real talent gap in the market when it came to the non-technical parts of a business, uh, particularly a high-growth scale-up. So that meant not only marketing sales, but also finance and operations. And I was just really, frankly, frustrated by seeing the same patterns over and over again. As a VC, you get very good at pattern recognition. And one of the patterns I was seeing was that there's just this huge talent gap when it came to the finance and operations side of the business and how that ultimately maps to go-to-market best practices, especially as you build out a multi-geography high-growth business. So that ultimately led me to start Pegafund about a year ago. Moving corporate in January of 2020, never thought the pandemic would happen. I don't think anyone did. And then launched in June. I think many businesses in the technology space actually accelerated in terms of growth. So today we're working with six clients. And hopefully by the end of this year, we'll be working with 20. Really interesting and and amazing to see how quickly you've grown and this niche that you've discovered with early stage and finance and operations. Can you start off by giving me an overview of what problems for early stage startups you solve and why that is so important? I think from a very high level, and you can probably relate to this, Anita, when you go from startup to scale up and ultimately a growth business, you need to move from being a family to a high performing sports team. And what I mean by that is really in the early days of a business, especially as a high growth European SaaS business, pre 5 million euros in AR, you're selling to your first, second, third degree of connections. You're hiring a lot of very motivated, ambitious, quick learners who are generalists, who are very passionate about the business, the vision, and the market you're in. And then you get to a point, typically pre-series B, series B round, where you need to show that the business is productive. Things like AR, where the AR is coming from, gross margin, CAC, CAC payback, all the SaaS metrics that an investor asks for, you need to start actually communicating that already in the business so that you can make better decisions that are based on what the customers are telling you, what the people within your business are telling you, and ultimately what the need of the market is rather than your vision for the market. So you're saying that early stage, they're not necessarily tracking these metrics? Is that the issue? Yeah, I think it's a combination of not tracking the metrics, but more importantly, not tracking the right metrics 
and understanding what insights you derive from these metrics and how the metrics relate to each other. I think the problems and challenges center around understanding what the numbers actually mean so that you go back to tracking the right metrics. You can track a lot of numbers for each team and for each business. There's really only one or two or three KPIs that are really going to move the needle when it comes to future growth and decision-making. You use the word scale-up. So is scale-up typically Series B and above? Is that what you mean by the word scale-up versus startups? Great question. Scale-up would be, in today's market, I think Series A, B, C is kind of all mixed together a little bit, to be quite candid, uh, depending on which geography you're in and what type of business you're also building. But for me, scale-up is really when you're building out your commercial engine once you've shown clear product market fit, this like very tight integration between the solution that you've developed for the market that you're in and exactly where you play in the value chain. And you're starting to build both inbound and outbound in terms of your commercial engine as a business. That's what I would consider scale-up. It's also tends to be when you're selling outside of uh, the core region that you were built in. So if you are a Dutch or a Belgium company, it means you're selling into, let's say, France or UK and also thinking about US go-to-market. So it tends to be multi-geography as well. It also means that your team is a reflection, reflective rather, of the geos that you're selling and distributing your product into. Let's actually take it piece by piece. Let's say the early stages, zero to one million. I feel like there are certain inflection points where it's clear that the organization, the way they set up their operating model and their general go-to-market motion Mm -hmm. needs to change at different inflection points. Let's look at the early stage of zero to one. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can talk about what are the key KPIs for SaaS companies to focus on at that stage? And maybe what are some rules of thumb for what good looks like? When do B2B SaaS companies get to economies of scale? Usually economies of scale is achieved between 10 to $30 million in annual recurring revenue. And the reason for that is at that point in time, you will have invested enough into what's called GNA, the general administrative part of the organization, which is basically product and development. And you have enough proof points around how you distributed that product and development. So early investment into marketing and sales that as a business, you are unit economics profitable. So what that essentially means is if you cut expenditure into new marketing and sales, your business will generate cash and still continue to grow, oftentimes more than 40% year on year. Before that point, you don't really have economies of scale. There's three key stages, which is getting to that million or two million in AR. Then it's getting from two to five or two to six. And then the the stage after, which is getting from five or six to 10 to 15. At the really early stage, which is between zero to two, the key metrics that you look at, firstly, from a finance perspective, it's looking at your AR growth in that AR, your gross margin. So that's a function of cost to deliver, which in most cases is hosting for a SaaS company. And in some cases as well, customer support associated with that. So that's really, really important because by 5 million AR, you should see a stability of gross margin. At one to two, you should start tracking that pretty closely to figure out your 
pricing and packaging strategy for your product. It's also at that stage that you need to make sure that you have good quality data, which goes back to both team KPIs, which is what you look at inside the business as a leading indicator of growth, but also accounting data to make sure that you're actually allocating your costs and recognizing your revenue in a way that's conducive for a SaaS business. There's so much to unpack in that zero to two segment that you talked about. So you're saying the key in the zero to two is really to track the gross margin. And by 5 million, you should be seeing a stabilizing of that number. Exactly. Is there like a rule of thumb on what it should be or what is it that VCs look for in that stage and those KPIs? I would say if you're a product-like company, I'm expecting to see steady-state gross margins of 90% maybe higher because you just have hosting costs, essentially. If you are an enterprise business and you have, therefore, some costs associated with services in terms of implementation, support, et cetera, I'm expecting much lower gross margins. So 70% plus would be actually pretty reasonable to see. And as a result, because those are also fundamentally very different sales cycles, right? Like for enterprise business, you could get into... 12, 18, 24 month sales cycles, you just won't see stability of gross margin until much later in scale for those types Mm. of businesses. Whereas for a PLG company, you can see the ROI on marketing spend within two to four weeks. So that's why the scale factor also varies, but definitely by 5 million AR, you'll have enough customer logos and scale to start seeing, regardless if you're a PLG company or if you're more of an enterprise company, you'll be able to start seeing stability around what the cost to deliver for a solution is. And what are other metrics that in this stage can help the founder make better decisions? One you said is a gross margin. And if that's not stabilizing, it tends to show that there's something off with where the market is. Yeah, exactly. The other one is to look at your, basically it's a function of your pricing and packaging strategy, which is to look at your um, annual contract value and your total contract value. So if you're a product-led company, I'm expecting four-digit ACV contracts and therefore starting to see early signs of CAC and CAC payback, which reflect that motion, which is more marketing inbound-led. And so that ultimately is a reflection of your go-to-market strategy, both in terms of pricing and packaging and also in terms of your organizational design. For an enterprise company, it's going to be a lot more inside and feel sales led. And those in sales just takes a lot more to become productive than marketing or product. So therefore, your pricing should reflect that as well. How do you know if the packaging or the pricing is out of whack? Is there a way to know from looking at the numbers? I think two comments to that. One that's super important is to understand who you compete with, not just from a product perspective in terms of features and functionality, but also from a budget perspective and a time perspective. And then when you do that competitive analysis, you should look at how your solution stacks relative to that on a pricing and and packaging strategy. So really, really important to do the competitive analysis well, not only in your own geography, but across geographies. I think that's one gap that I commonly see across a lot of businesses is just don't do the competitive analysis deep enough. Um, And they only start realizing it when you're at the five to 10 or 10 to 15 million AR because you start turning to those competitors. 
The other thing is to basically look at your ACV relative to your CAC and CAC payback because those are looked at in tandem to each other. So just to explain, CAC or CAC payback is cost of customer acquisition, which is measured as a function of gross margin in some cases, as well as ARR. So the way you would calculate CAC payback would be you would take your CAC divided over your net new ARR for that same period of that expenditure, or you would take your CAC and divide that over your gross margin of that net new ARR for the same period. If you are, as an example, an enterprise company, I would expect CAC payback of 18, 24 months, but five or six digit ACV contracts. Mm -hmm. If you are product-led, inbound-driven marketing type of solution, then you would expect four-digit or even less ACV and CAC payback of, you know, three, six months or maybe mm-hmm. even less in some cases. Making sure that those are aligned is super important because then that tells you a lot about product market fit, but ultimately go to market fit as well. What about on the operational side in terms of the team and the people in that phase? Are there any numbers to indicate whether you have the right team structure, number of people, et cetera? I think really difficult to say at that stage because the company hasn't gotten to scale yet, but it's more a function of if I'm looking at your headcount plan for this year and next year, how does that then sync up with ultimately your go-to-market strategy? So what I mean by that as an example is if you say, well, I'm a product-led company, then I hope you're hiring a lot of people in product and marketing as a result. If I'm an enterprise company, then you should start thinking about hiring not only account executives and business development representatives to support those account executives, but you probably also want like a channel partner manager who's going to be working closely with people that could help on the implementation side, people who can help access geos that are more used to buying from resellers. So if we move from that stage, zero to two or zero to five, as you were saying, mm-hmm. and to the next stage before 10, mm-hmm. what are the key metrics at that time? And what is it that you find as common mistakes entrepreneurs make in that stage in terms of these metrics? I'd say zero to five and still five to 10, you're very much focused on new logo acquisition. So just getting your product out to as many customers as possible. From 5 to 10, you start shifting towards upsell and expansion, ultimately maximizing your customer lifetime value and the wallet share that you can get from a particular logo. At that point, you should start seeing a motion of quick expansion, of being able to sign, let's say, master service agreements pretty quickly. Then as a result of those master service agreements, being able to enter into a sister or brother subsidiary of the same parent that you've already worked with. So these are the things that you're starting to see more of. The more you can see expansion quite quickly after you've land, the more it shows that you have strong product market fit and people, your customers have that delight that you really want to see, not only from a product perspective, but also from a customer experience perspective. But that's really key. It's also at 5 to 10 million AR that you start seeing churn. At that point, you want to basically really understand a few things. One, when you look at your deal loss 
ratios, understand and dive into why are you losing deals? Who are you losing deals to? Right. When customers churn, look up what proportion of that is voluntary churn versus involuntary churn. So who are the customers we're happy to forego because they're no longer core to that our current and next stage of business growth? And who are the customers where you should have done all that you could to keep them? And so when you look at these two factors in combination, the, the metric that's really key at that point is net retention. Hmm. So it's looking for that gross retention on a dollar and logo basis, and then looking at net retention, net of churn. The companies uh, that are doing well, generally VCs are looking for a net retention of 120 plus or higher year on year. Uh, so that means, let's say if you're a mid to enterprise solution, you're churning, call it 10% a year, and you're able to upsell 30% or more. And so your net is 120 uh, plus. The best performing companies have net retentions of 140, 150, 160 plus, even at that stage, because they're able to just show that really tight product market um, fit and early signs of go-to-market success on a global level. And is that true for both enterprise companies as well as the more marketing inbound-led companies? I would say that product-led growth marketing inbound-led companies generally have higher net retention because of the fact that they're able to expand quicker and they have a larger install base of customer logos in which they can also feed data back into the business. I would have thought the inbound one, which is kind of more self-service, try it, use it, buy it, is also just as easy to switch out of. So there'd be higher churn, but like you said, maybe higher growth of new logos makes it so that the net is easier. Yeah, those businesses, you just have quicker feedback loop. For enterprise businesses, your feedback loop is slower because you need to collect the data from your salespeople. And sometimes salespeople are great at selling, which means they're also great at selling themselves, which means that the quality of data just isn't as high as a company that's tracking their product KPIs really closely. So there's just yeah. a slower feedback loop in enterprise sales and also arguably like a smaller talent pool for people that can do that kind of sales. What I've seen from the operational perspective is that the churn, even though it's happening, the need for new logos and new business always seems to dominate. And hence the churn as a problem, even though you're seeing it, is not something that a company puts as much effort as they do on the new business aspect of it. Every time you're losing a deal, you should track why you're losing that deal and make sure that's known to everyone in the business. Doing that post-mortem analysis is super important. When you lose a customer, you know, make sure you're really losing it for the right reasons, either because you've increased your pricing and they're no longer the right fit. So they're too small of a company or the pain is not felt enough. But really make sure that you understand the voluntary and involuntary churn split and, and the reasons behind that. You've talked a little bit about tracking now. I think it might be useful to just touch upon what are the tools or systems that should be in place to do this tracking both in the zero to five and then later on so that we have these numbers for the founders and entrepreneurs to actually make decisions on? I'm a big believer that you should be implementing your systems, not too heavy systems, the systems that are right for the business early on. And that means having the right system in place for every function of a business. So that's engineering, that's product, it's marketing, it's sales, 
and also finance and operations. Along with that, every function has different priorities in terms of systems. But first and foremost, I think the one that's really important is ultimately your CRM or your customer relationship Mm -hmm. management system. And here, there are also differences because if you are, let's say, targeting the enterprise, even though Salesforce is a heavy solution, I would just suggest implement it from day one because every single great salesperson that you're going to want to hire is trained on Salesforce. They're not going to go into HubSpot. They just won't know how to navigate it and you're not going to get them productive soon. I think if you're more of a marketing-led business, then it's perfectly fine to use HubSpot or Pipedrive or one of the more SMB-type solutions that are more focused on top of the funnel. But that's that's super important. Also thinking about your billing system from a finance uh, perspective is quite important. So there's different solutions out there, also depending on what geography you're in and where your customers are based. You can look at different solutions Accounting is really important to get right as well, because that means you are actually allocating your payroll or your headcount costs appropriately. And for almost all businesses, whether it's a VC fund or a SaaS company, still you have somewhere between 60 to 80% of the business being labor. So it's really important that you're allocating the labor to the right buckets of either cost to deliver, cost to customer acquisition, or cost to build. And you do that early because if you do it afterwards, it just takes a long time to clean through that data and that you get the reporting on uh, a frequent enough basis. You should be looking at your CRM data once a week, both in terms of within sales and also within finance. You should be looking at your SaaS metrics at least once a month as a leadership team and also as an entire business. When you talk about these systems and looking at reports frequently, the role of RevOps yeah. becomes really important. I'm hearing more about it, mm-hmm. but in the initial stages, they had some Salesforce administrator that would just basically help the salespeople to know how to put in opportunities. And then they would yeah. have a marketing ops person, but there wasn't anybody looking at revenue reporting and the metrics. Yes, I guess it kind of fell to controllers to some extent in the companies that I've worked in. I don't know if you have a view on when RevOps should be bought in? That's a really good question, a really good point. I think revenue operations or business operations or just operations in general should be brought in when you are starting to go exceed 2 million AR and definitely when you're at 5 million AR. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule because it really depends on how many customer logos you have. But I think when you start to get into the hundreds of logos, you should really think about revenue and business operations as a function. It also depends on your billing and invoice cycle. Let's say you have 100 logos, you have annual billing. That means you're billing 100 invoices, all things given to the customer. That's pretty easy to manage manually. And you don't need systems to interact as much. If you do monthly billing and you have Mm. 3,000 logos we're talking 3,600 invoices. So that's a lot more difficult to manage. It's really a function of, uh, and this is where finance and operations need to work really closely together in line with the rest of the business. But that's when it's really important to think about, okay, business revenue operations, how is this aligning across all the teams and functions? And are we all rowing the boat in the same direction at the same pace? I think that's good advice and one that I'm hoping entrepreneurs listening really take heed to because they usually get that later on. Okay, let's go back to metrics from the systems view. Are there any specific metrics 
that help you to determine, for example, when you want to expand? And what is your general advice on expanding within Europe versus to the US from the native country based on metrics or best practices that you've seen? Expansion metrics, I would say it's a function of a couple of things. Leading indicators, your pipeline, looking at your marketing qualified leads, your sales qualified leads, your marketing or sales qualified opportunities, conversion ratios across that to ultimately close. And then the time associated with that from one stage to another, and ultimately the cost. So when people look at CAC and CAC payback, then you need to break that down further into the different functions within your business and the different stages across a funnel. When you have good visibility into that and you're seeing positive momentum, where it shows that actually you can invest more heavily into marketing or sales or maybe a combination of, that's a really good sign that you should be just spending more money in your commercial engine and hiring people faster or hiring more expensive people sooner. I would also look at cohort analysis quite closely. And that's both on a product basis, but also on a geo basis, because you know it's not fair to compare, let's say you expanded into the UK a year ago, and then the company was built three years ago out of, I don't know, the Netherlands. It wouldn't be fair to compare your Dutch customer base to your UK customer base because they're just not as mature in u- utilizing your solution. So really important to look at cohort analysis too. What I'm hearing is looking at the geometrics in addition or looking at the same data from a geo perspective can help the business determine where they should be spending more or less of the money. Yeah, definitely. Because also each geography has a different business culture and a different way of buying as well. So I was on a panel um, recently, a SaaS stock, where we uh, spoke to the VP of sales at Zoom Info. And he mentioned a really important statistic, which I didn't even know myself, but it makes a lot of sense when I looked at the patterns across European businesses that have gone to the US uh, that I've worked with, which is that when you look at the overall customer and user journey, more than two thirds of it is done before you even pick up the phone with a customer in the US. So having that social proof in terms of brand recognition, in terms of Fortune 1000 logos, in terms of recognition by Gartner, Forrester, ICD, one of these research analyst organizations, and also just having like the messaging on the website written in a way that a US buyer is used to reading, optimized for SEO and all of that is actually like super important. I think people underestimate how much nuance is associated with localizing a go-to-market strategy that's global. Because at the end of the day, every country has its own business culture and you do need to adapt to it if you want to have great conversion across your marketing and sales funnel. In one of my previous companies, we always used to throw that number around. We used to say 57% of a buyer's journey happens before they ever talk to a person. So having the right information available to them while they're doing their research and evaluation is critical. And you need to have it not just on your website, but in places where they are going to look for information, all the community hubs and um, other independent publications. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, if you don't do that right, what I've seen happen is in the core geography where a customer is based in, they'll only need 10 touch points to get to that sale. 
they go to a new geography and they require a hundred touch points. So all of a sudden you're like, something is not working because that means we need to hire 10 times more people to get to the same end goal. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the nuance of business culture, motion, messaging, all of that. You talked about US and the business culture. Mm-hmm. Do you think from a metrics perspective, there is any difference between how European companies are viewed, especially by VCs versus US companies? For example, a lot of European companies are now looking for funding from US investors. Yeah. Are the metrics the same? Is there any difference because of geo at all? I would say fundamentally the metrics are similar in the sense that you're looking at the same metrics in terms of the patterns that you're looking for in the metrics. There are, there are some differences in, and what you would look for. So what I've seen happen more commonly is that typically European SaaS companies will get to somewhere between call it three to 8 million AR dollars, euros, And they are already having pretty good momentum in the U.S. market. So they've launched either with an office or they've built out a team that's selling remotely from Europe. But that's at the point where I would say U.S. VCs historically have been really very much interested in investing in those companies that have early signs of momentum in the U.S. And most likely one of the founders has moved there already I do think for European companies, the call it the J curve effect VCs would or investors to look for, or the hockey stick effect that is more commonly used in terms of ter- terminology happens a little bit later because of the fact that Europe is a fragmented market. Hmm. Right? I think arguably more competition from out of the box SaaS solution perspective, but the sales cycles are shorter and the ACVs are higher. In Europe, you have multiple different regions and then sub countries within those regions, which means it's, you still need to localize it for each of those regions. And therefore in the early days, it might take a little bit longer to get to call it that five or 10 million AR just selling in Europe. But as soon as that product market fit is found and early signs that go to market is then also discovered across Europe and early stages in the U S then that inflection point actually accelerates more than I would say in a U.S. company. So the curves look different, but the metrics that you're looking for fundamentally are the same. Okay. You talk about having a blueprint for an operating model for growing scale-ups in a number of your blogs, where it can be challenging to prioritize your efforts and resources against customer demands, investor expectations, and then the needs of an expanding team all at once. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe elaborate on that a bit more? I think it's really two elements which are very intertwined and related. One, it's your metrics. So it's very hard to argue with data. And data also ensures that people are held accountable for their decisions on hiring, on spend, all of that. So making sure that the SaaS metrics that you're reporting to your investors are actually utilized on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis inside a business when you're 5 million AR and definitely when you're bigger is like super important. And then as a function of that, it's also making sure that you have a proper operating cadence. So how you're communicating that data, how people interpret the insights that are derived from that data, how that's then fed into the different parts of the business, and also how that's communicated with your investors and your external shareholder base is also really important. And all of that in tandem 
we call the scale up operating model. And what that means is really it's a way of communicating consistently inside and outside your business on what are the key business value drivers that will continue to support growth, especially predictable growth and go-to-market success across multiple markets globally going forward. What are the key metrics you should be communicating to show that? So from a finance perspective, you should be sitting down once a week with sales to go through the pipeline. As a management team, you should be looking at your SaaS metrics. So all the different ones, I'd say at least once a month. Partly depends on what kind of business you're building, but those are generally pretty good indicators of that. Looking at your cash management and collections on cash from customers at least once a month, if not ideally more frequently. Those are, in short, are some of the things that are important. A lot of it's a lot more nuanced. So things like making sure you have all hands meetings once a week, you have team meetings, all that. It's going to vary a little bit business to business and stage to stage, but it's really making sure that what someone else is saying is the same as what you're saying, which is what the person next to you also understands. I think it's one thing to all be able to see the metrics, which by the way, I've seen very few companies do on a regular basis, Mm. especially on a weekly basis to have those metrics as something that they look at. I'm not sure how many companies do it. But I think the second part is, even if you can see it, like you said, those metrics mean different things to different teams. So like whatever the churn number means, the action from the churn number for the marketing team versus the product team is probably different in terms of what you need to do going forward. I think the interpretation of those metrics is just as important as actually knowing what those metrics are. Yeah, it's like what we used to say in um, thanking garbage in, garbage out. (laughs) So (laughs) it's really important to understand, uh, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but it's really important to understand and align on what are the inputs to the metrics. So how are the metrics defined and really understand what the edge cases are so that everyone agrees across the business, across the functions, what are we actually looking at? And then once the numbers have been produced, that the interpretation and the insights that you derive from it is also used consistently and communicating consistently. Because otherwise, you know, the numbers are just sitting there, but they're not really useful for decision-making. They're not there to please your investors. They're actually there to help, you know, run an efficient high-growth business. Okay. I have a couple of questions around funding, which I know is so important to early-stage companies. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see startups make when they are preparing for fundraising? I'll answer that question by starting off with what are the three ingredients to success in a fundraise? First and always, it's building a great business. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. Secondly, it's process. I think that's one that a lot of founders underestimate or undervalue. And then third, it's storytelling, which everyone knows is important, regardless of if you're a startup or if you're a publicly traded company. It's all about selling the vision of how you see growth going forward for the business. Now, when it comes to the first element, especially when you're growing very quickly, it takes a long time to pull together data and make sure that everyone is aligned on the data and also how that's being used in the company. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is the data is not there to support a fundraise process. The data is there to support a business in terms of predictable growth and go-to-market success. So one of the common challenges I see for a lot of businesses fundraising is 
they think, okay, my investors told me that I need to raise in 12, 15 months time. Therefore, that means I work backwards at six, three or six months in advance. I need to prepare the data for my fundraise process. And then I just crush it at fundraising and then it's fine. That's not the case. You should always been looking at your data day in, day out, week in, week out to affect business decisions so that you can actually grow your business well. If you grow your business well, you'll just naturally attract the right investors and also buyers for your company. So that's first and foremost, super important is just getting your house in order as a scale up. The second is process. As someone who's lived through a recession in the past, we're currently living through very, I would say, unusual and unprecedented times. And I know every year we say that, you know, last year we had the pandemic, this year is second year of the pandemic, but it is, you know, for anyone who's lived through a recession or studied like the history of business um, in the past, you'll see that relative to economic fundamentals, there has been 12 years of a bull market. And a lot of that has to do with government stimulus. So there's been a lot of printing of the money machine and I would argue excessive quantitative easing in the Mm -hmm. financial markets, which means there's a very large supply of money. And so this element of FOMO or fear of missing out, or in other words, driving an auction process where you can get through a fundraise quickly and efficiently is super, super, super important. Like I cannot Mm -hmm. emphasize that enough. I often hear a founder saying, you know, I've spoken to between 100 and 150 Series A investors across Europe over a six, nine months time period and spent 50% of my time in fundraising. Like my first reaction is, why did you do that? Because there's probably really only 15, 20, max 25 funds that are really a good fit for your business in terms of what market you operate in, the kind of growth profile you're going after, the stage that you're in, and all these other factors that come into play. If you do your research ahead of time and you build relationships with the right people at those funds ahead of time, you should be able to get through a fundraise process from first meeting with a champion or a decision maker through to money in the bank in four or five months. So Mm -hmm. you can cut your time in half, if not more, by just making sure that you're actually speaking to the right potential investors and also making sure you're driving a process through a funnel in the same way that you would do sales. I think this is a very common mistake for founders is they kind of do it ad hoc Mm -hmm. and they play it by ear based on inbound introductions, just coming from all different angles, rather than putting it through a very systematic funnel, which is, in my view, the best way to run a fundraise process. And then thirdly, I think it's storytelling. I think that's the one that generally most people do pretty well. But ultimately, the storytelling that's different for a Series A and Series B company is the later stage you go, the less it becomes about the market the more it becomes about the organization and the team that you're building underneath the founders and how that maps to ultimately the unique positioning of the business in that market and also relative to competitors. The predictable growth. Exactly. (laughs) Having a hiring plan and having a very detailed integrated growth plan that maps to that hiring plan and maps to company positioning is super, super important at the Series B and beyond stage. 
So if I had to recap the three things that you said, you have to be really targeted about who you're going after. Instead of being opportunistic, have a very definitive process and almost a funnel-like system to make sure that you're picking investors that are actually the ones that would care about a business like yours rather than just going to anybody who you're getting introduced to. Yeah, and you're spending time with the right people. Right. And then the other point was tracking of the metrics is done on a weekly, monthly basis because you're trying to grow your business rather than doing it six months reactively just to prepare a deck for your investor growth. And then the third thing is to make sure that when you're looking at series B and beyond, that you have the organizational plan and the predictable growth model behind the storytelling, which everybody does do and gets good at, By series B, they all know how to tell the story, but make sure you're able to support it and defend why you're actually going to capitalize on that story by having that model. Would that be about right? The plan is actually having the leaders in place and having the leaders then be able to articulate their individual plan. So it's no longer about founders telling the story, it should be the founders are now the CEO and CTO of that business. They've recruited like an A-class second bench Mm -hmm. who have a proven track record of scaling in that space. Maybe not everyone, but hopefully half or some portion of that team. And then they have a very detailed plan around how they're going to do it in each of their respective functions. Okay. So when should they have this second bench? Is it just before Series B or after Series B? I mean, right now in the market, some Series B are really more Series A companies, but I would say it's when you're looking to spend most of your fundraise capital on sales and marketing efforts. Awesome, Joyce. It's been really interesting having this conversation with you. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Anita, for inviting me on the show. And I look forward to finding more ways to work together. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.